Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, celebrating the birthday of one of the most influential Americans of the 20th century. Every third week in January, millions pause to remember Reverend King's life as both admired civil rights leader and internationally respected Nobel Prize winner. But this year, the annual birthday celebration is the kickoff to an expansive national discussion of King's legacy 50 years after his assassination. In the months leading up to the April 4th anniversary, scholars and admirers around the country and the world are gathering to consider the legacy of Reverend King five decades after his death. Here on Under the Radar, we're convening a series of MLK 50 discussions. We begin today with two new books by local authors who say the persistent narrative of King as a dreamer is simply false. Later in the show, Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite song. He requested it at rallies and marches, and on April 4, 1968, his last words turned out to be a request for this song, the significance of Take My Hand, Precious Lord. But first, the 50th anniversary of MLK's death and its meaning. Joining me in the studio, Brandon Terry, assistant professor of African-American studies at Harvard University and co-editor of To Shape a New World, Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King, Jr. Welcome, Brandon. Thank you. Also with me, Jason Sokol, Associate Professor of History at the University of New Hampshire and author of The Heavens Might Crack, The Death and Legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr. Hello, Jason. Hi, Callie. I'm glad to have both of you. I did, just as a cursory check, looked at how many books have been written on Martin Luther King, Jr. and came up with about a dozen or more. Those are the ones that are just about him. There are many, many more when he is at the core of an explanation about the civil rights movement. So for you two to step back and on this 50th anniversary take another look, why did you think it was important at this time and space? Brandon, I'll start with you. Well, I think the biggest thing that motivated me and my co-editor, Tommy Shelby, who's a professor of philosophy and African and African-American studies at Harvard, is that for all of the renown and celebration of King, we thought that his legacy and his insight as a public philosopher had not quite been taken seriously enough and adequately considered. We forget that King was a scholar himself. He received a PhD in systematic theology from Boston University, and he's the author of many, many books. And these aren't just kind of puff books to sell the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or something like that. These are very serious, well-considered, well-argued contributions to African-American political thought and some of the most pressing debates in political theory, things like just war, economic justice, questions about political emotions of anger, questions about the theology and philosophy of love and ethical practice. And we thought that the time was ripe on the 50th anniversary to dive back into those writings and those arguments and really introduce people to King the Thinker in ways that we hoped would energize existing social movements and political practice. 
And Jason, same question to you. Why at this 50th anniversary was it a good time to sort of step back and look at King afresh? Right. Well, as you say, there are a number of excellent books on King already. Just Taylor Branch, David Garrow have written great biographies and several other scholars and authors have as well. A lot of those biographies end with King's death, with King standing on the balcony of Lorraine Motel and his confidants pointing in the direction of the assassin, which is a famous image that many of us have in our minds. My book picks up where those leave off. My book starts with that event, King's death, and tries to understand the ripples that that assassination sent around our nation and around the world. So I'm trying to understand King's impact Uh, how people responded to and experienced his death in the short term and also the long-term implications of that, how that death and more broadly how King's life fit into our nation's history. I want to start with a clip that everybody's going to play tomorrow, (laughs) as they always do, from the I Have a Dream speech, because both of you in your work come to a similar conclusion, though uh, examining it in different ways, in that King is sort of, as one of my colleagues would say, frozen in amber Mm -hmm. at this moment. So let's listen to a clip from Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, and this is delivered by King on August 28, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. So Jason of the University of New Hampshire Your book is started right at the death, as you said, of Martin Luther King Jr. And I think a lot of people will holding that I have a dream speech in mind will be surprised at what how you start off in your book that he was not beloved. It seemed from that speech he was beloved by Americans and certainly white Americans were brought to admire and respect him. It's not what you found out in the immediate aftermath. I'd like you to read from your book and just give us a sense of what was happening. Okay. So this is from a chapter about the hostility toward King among white Americans. And I write, Many white Americans had long thought of King as a communist, a rabble-rouser, and an agitator. They used the red brush in trying to discredit his many campaigns for racial equality. The FBI, under the leadership of J. Edgar Hoover, spied on King and harassed him. In 1964, Hoover referred to King as the most notorious liar in the country, Presidents John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson also fretted about King's associations with former communists. In 1966, an opinion survey found that 72% of white Americans held unfavorable views of King. Even if King seemed less frightening than Malcolm X or various black power leaders, his desired end, a beloved community of racial justice and interracial peace, was nothing short of revolutionary. He meant to transform the country. Many whites trembled before this vision. They feared his goals and begrudged him his fame. To explore whites' attitudes toward King in the wake of his murder is to plumb the depths of that hostility. It's also to understand one of the greatest transformations wrought by King's death, the revision of his own image in the American mind. 
White antipathy for King certainly lasted even after his assassination. But over the years, King would gradually evolve from a controversial crusader hated by many to a national hero beloved by all. King's murder began that evolution. So I think a lot of people will be surprised when they read that response and also think in terms of his image evolving, because I think so many people think of him as just this guy and everybody respected him, but that was a long time coming. And one of the things that you pick up in your book, Brandon Terry of Harvard, is that some of that came about because of what you mentioned earlier. He was just a guy who was like a good orator. He was a good speaker. He There hasn't been a way really until you and your colleagues have said to really make a genre to think about what he was doing when he philosophized, when he had strategic thought about where we are and the condition of America and racism. So I wonder if you would go to page seven in your book and just give us a sense in the introduction of what you and your colleagues are attempting to do to reset that image. Although poetic and prophetic performance can indeed impart vital philosophical insight, interpreting a public philosopher like King solely through this lens risks distortion and invites misuse. For instance, one can be tempted to invoke a phrase abstracted from its context to amplify an idea or advance a cause that King actually opposed. One might treat a quoted remark as if it were a standalone aphorism when in fact King used it as a premise in a wider argument. Or because a particular rhetorical presentation of an idea resonates powerfully, one might feel viscerally that it is grasped without, however, appreciating its full implications or philosophical grounding. We contend that King is a systematic thinker, and thus it is imperative to dig beneath his soaring oratory and prowess and quotable phrases to find the complex reasons he provides to support his practical conclusions. So let me start with you, and that was Brandon Terry, reading from his uh, new book, To Shape a New World, Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King, Jr. I would like for you at this moment, and we're going to revisit this at the end, how would you describe Martin Luther King now? given the work that you've done in both your books. I'll let you start, Brandon. Sure. So, you know, I've written a piece in the Boston Review on Martin Luther King now. And one of the things I'm really trying to recover uh, there and in the book is a sense of just how radical his political ideas were. His sense of the question of justice was that because American society did not achieve a level of reciprocity for its most disadvantaged citizens, whether they were oppressed racial minorities or the poor and disenfranchised, because they didn't achieve this level of reciprocity, these people were justified in embracing extremely coercive forms of political action in the form of mass civil disobedience, political disruption, insofar as, and this is the important caveat, insofar as it was exercised in a spirit of love, forgiveness with the aspirations toward refounding democracy and integrated beloved community. And when we return to those ideas of King, we start to see that, I mean, I think that I Have a Dream speech is a great example, is that we have this, this picture, this kind of aesthetic picture of, you know, kids holding hands and playing together, and it's a very easy idea of diversity to assimilate to our existing society. But 
actually, if you look at the kind of political proposals King had for what integration would really have to look like, it means the abolition of ghettos. It means uprooting the entire entrenched political economy that leads to ghettoization from American soil. It meant redrawing the boundaries of metropolitan communities. He once entertained this idea of school parks where they would bus kids from all over metropolitan regions into a single kind of school complex to foster integration. I mean, these are really radical ideas. They would force us to rethink American federalism, constitutional law, even our notions of private property. And that's not the guy we get on the McDonald's placemat. That's not the guy we get on the commercials that come during King Day or, or Black History Month. And that's the kind of radical thinker that we wanted to recover. So, Jason, who is King in the image um, that you have pulled together now from the work that you've done on this new book? And your new book is The Heavens Might Crack, The Death and Legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr. Part of the genius of King was that he could be a lot of things at once. He could be a preacher and an activist at the same time. He could be an orator and an organizer. He could be a patriot and a dissident. One of the things that I think stayed true throughout his career was his commitment to civil disobedience, Mm -hmm. to breaking the law when that law was unjust. I mean, we're sitting here at a time when a lot of people get mad when a football player kneels in silence on the sideline. That's nothing compared to what King did. What King did hundreds of times, which was paralyze entire cities. And his final campaign was the poor people's campaign. And uh, what King planned for that was he wanted millions of impoverished Americans of all races, white, black, Latino, whatever, to come together to march on Washington and to shut down the Capitol until the federal government did more about poverty. And so I think that's often forgotten. And, you know, you, you play the most famous line from I Have a Dream. You know, you can select different lines. I, you could have played the line where King address the quote-unquote unspeakable horrors of police brutality. You could have played the line where he warned about the, quote, whirlwinds of revolt. I mean, those are his words. Those are In rad- that speech. Yeah, yes. in that same it, speech. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. so, so it, it is really amazing that that's the line people know, and they don't know the lines about police brutality and the whirlwinds of revolt. Or that's the line they... Want to know. Maybe maybe that's the way of putting it. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Harvard University's Brandon Terry, author of To Shape a New World, Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King, Jr. He's co-editor with Tommy Shelby of Harvard. And the University of New Hampshire's Jason Sokol, author of The Heavens Might Crack, The Death and Legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr. And on this eve of the annual celebration of Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr.'s life, we're discussing the meaning of his political legacy, 50 years after his death. Now, what's interesting, Jason, is I learned in your book in great amount of graphic detail is that the image that some people had of him then, which is not what they have now, as Brandon has talked about the radical king, they suspected he might be that, and they were mad about it. And talk about some of the letters and documents you got from real folks who wrote after his death the sentiment that, you know, good riddance, but worse than that. Yeah, there was a segment of white America that felt King had received his just desserts when he died. They felt that King went around whipping up violence and went around breaking laws and that the assassin just broke a different law and was responding to King's own agitation in a way. And and yeah, there were many white people wrote letters to newspaper publishers, to NBC anchors, uh, letters that I read. And these letters didn't just come from white Southerners. 
it was people around the nation, um, the a resident of Chicago, resident of Michigan, resident of New York, basically saying good riddance and celebrating King's death. I think some of the celebrations of King's death were maybe a little more open in the South, but that doesn't mean that uh, many whites in the rest of the country did actually celebrate King's death in that way. What was one of the most surprising conclusions you may have come to after doing the work on these new books? Brandon, what stood out for you? We should say that you have a number of essays, so there are mm-hmm. a number of contributors. Right. But overarching, what, what, sure. did you, what did you all come away with that was sure. surprising to you? Well, it was a great group of mm-hmm. scholars involved in the book. Uh, Martha Nussbaum, Robert Gooding Williams, Tommy Shelby, Karuna Mantina, Cornell West. And once we all got together to debate and discuss the thinking of King, one of the things that was remarkable about it was watching these philosophers who've been at this for a long time. I mean, many of these are the leading philosophers in in the country. For them to just be blown away by, one, the rigor of King's thought, because, again, I think people think of him more as a rhetorician and an activist and a thinker, and B, some of the surprising conclusions, um, so in my, in my essays in the volume, one of the things I looked at was his thinking about gender and gender justice. And a lot of people don't know, but King used to actually have an advice column in Ebony Magazine, believe really? it or not. Yes. That is surprising. <laughs> okay. In, in the late 1950s, okay. uh, Ebony Magazine had a Dr. King advice column. And people would write to Dr. King and ask for advice about all sorts of things, right? Because he's a pastor. You know, here's I'm having some trouble with my husband. He drinks too much. He's wow. abusive. Dr. King, what should I do? And one of the things that I really looked at is that in a lot of the contemporary activist debates right now, which are about the politics of respectability, which are about the place of feminism, gender equality, considerations of of sex and sexuality, you know, where does Dr. King fit now? And one of the things that I think I was really shocked to find was just how amenable some of his thought is to retrieval for feminist ends, um, particularly when most people don't think of him as a kind of Mm. important figure for feminist thinkers, but people like Bell Hooks have organized a lot of their thought around King, and they're things that he gets really right. Basic minimum income, the idea that welfare recipients and tenants and rental properties need to organize and have active, recognized unions to agitate for their rights and equity— and these are things that would be really crucial to a sense of gender justice in the presence. But he also had these things that you can kind of see in the Ebony Advice columns that are, are pretty retrograde notions about the family, about the nature of women and men mm-hmm. that need to be expunged from his thought if we're going to make it something that can really, really be productive for a truly egalitarian movement in the present. Surprising, Jason Sokol. What did you find surprising? Well, one of the things was just the depths of the white hatred, which I already covered. But on the flip side, I was also struck by the intensity of African-Americans' reverence for King because one of the sort of prevailing stories about King at the end of his life was that many young blacks had turned against him. You know, one of the prevailing stories is that the rise of black power came in 1966, 67, 68, and that African-Americans basically thought King was no longer relevant with his nonviolent approach. What I found after his death was that that was not really true. I mean, even people who you would call black militants and radicals, even they mourned for King. Even they thought he was a sort of heaven-sent 
figure, really. Even they mourned as though a member of their family had died. So, I mean, the intensity of the reverence for King, I think, is also something that's easily forgotten, especially when you start to think about black power. And then um, the last thing I would say is that he was really a global figure also. Mm-hmm. We, we think of him as the leader of the Southern Civil Rights Movement. Well, it was not just the Southern Civil Rights Movement. It was a national movement. But he was also a really important figure in anti-imperial and anti-colonial struggles everywhere from Africa to Asia to Europe. And so uh, when I looked at the international reactions to King's death, I found that some people in other distant parts of the globe were grieving for King just as profoundly as, as many Americans were. And I didn't know that part before starting the book. Can I just say one thing quickly to follow up Jason's point? So the other essay I have in the volume is about King's debate with black power. Right. And I think Jason is spot on with this point. One of the things that King was really incredible about doing and that has sort of fallen out of our contemporary public discourse is that he had an incredibly sympathetic engagement with black power. It was a you lot know what? Of Let me put a pause on that and put an and let's play an excerpt from Stokely Carmichael's Black Power speech. Then you can riff off of sure, that. Sure, this is sure. a speech at the University of California, Berkeley, on October 29, 1966. We refuse to be the therapy for white society any longer. We have gone mad trying to do it. We have gone stark raving mad trying to do it. I look at Dr. King on television every single day. And I say to myself, now there is a man who is desperately needed in this country. There is a man full of love. There is a man full of mercy. There is a man full of compassion. But every time I see Lyndon on television, I said, Martin, baby, you've got a long way to go. That's Stokely Carmichael. And then Lyndon, of course, is a President Lyndon Johnson. Now pick up your thought, Brandon Terry. No, and I, and I think, I mean, if you read Stokely in particular, just the love he has for Martin Luther King that was forged in the Meredith March in 1966 is just uh, palpable on every page of his autobiography. But King really engaged black power activists and intellectuals as serious interlocutors. He didn't explain away their ideas as just psychological reactions to disappointment. He didn't just dismiss them as kids without anything meaningful to say. In fact, he changed many of his ideas about the importance of independent black institutions, the emphasis on race pride and black accomplishment. But he took them seriously as people to argue with, and he offered really serious criticisms of them that it's important to remember in our time about the place of anger in political discourse, about the limits of a race-only analytical lens that doesn't take seriously enough the dramatic changes in political economy that have happened since the end of World War II, and particularly intensified after the 1960s. And King thought that one of the real ways that black power went astray is that it didn't understand that the language of race couldn't adequately capture what was happening in the realm of technological transformations of work and the kinds of alliances that you would need to build in order to affect the poverty that came in the wake of that and the stagnation of wages that came in the wake of that. But I think what both of you said in your books is that this attempt to pit King and the Stokely Carmichaels and other voices like his against each other really pretty effectively failed, wouldn't you agree, Jason, during this time, as people were trying to do that? I mean, he he was very much, I am about nonviolence, but he expressed anger about a lot of stuff that was happening, and slowly. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, 
Also, one of the interesting things is King's response to urban riots and urban rebellions. I mean, you know, in 1967, we had uh, the most enormous uprisings in Newark and Detroit. And then, you know, right after King's assassination, April 68, there were hundreds more urban riots. Well, King, King tried to understand the despair that was at the root of those riots. He didn't simply dismiss violent people as simply wrongheaded. Uh, he called riots, quote, the language of the unheard. Right before he died, King uh, had sent out this fundraising letter under the SCLC that warned that the federal government was playing Russian roulette with riots because it hadn't adequately responded to some of the scourge in American cities. So, so I think he was really trying to understand what was going on, just as Brandon said, trying to understand what was going on, even among those people who were discarding his own brand of nonviolence. He still wanted to reach them and comprehend them. So let's talk about MLK now, as uh, one of your books characterize. And I'll remind our viewers, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Brandon Terry of Harvard and Jason Sokol of the University of New Hampshire. And both are authors of new books about the legacy of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., something we're examining 50 years after his death. Let's talk about King now, because something both of you attack from different in different ways is the co-opting of his message. So now everybody march with King. Now everything King said was brilliant and supports what they say. It's almost like quoting from the Bible. Right. Um, and that just needs to be put to rest. So from the scholarly, the historical, the documented perspectives that you have brought together in your latest work, I'd like you both to address it. Brandon, you may start. Sure. So in this piece I have in the Boston Review, which is part of a larger issue to 50 years after MLK, you know, I really try to distill what I think are some critical ideas from his thought for activists and intellectuals right now. One of the things I focus on is that King is a sophisticated theorist of racism. I mean, he emphasizes a couple of things that we usually don't foreground. One is the tight link between racism and fear and paranoia. Uh, one of the things I think, you know, Jason's book sounds like it does an incredible job of doing, I can't wait to read it, is unpacking just the level of paranoia and terror that attend to these kinds of racial tensions. And what King was really smart about was that in theorizing how to attack racism, he never lost sight of the fact that it was so irrational and that whatever response you have has to be calibrated. You can't expect people who are in the throes of such irrationality to respond rationally. So your protest has to somehow confront that and disarm the most paranoid responses. One of the things he was afraid of with riots is that he, he had a line that it would strengthen the right wing of the country and increase its fascist tendencies. That's what happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's often characterized as a kind of moralist or a dreamer, but he's really a stark realist thinker about a lot of politics. Another piece that I try to draw attention to from his thinking is just the way he foregrounded the importance of virtue in everyday life and political struggle. And that in our rush to kind of condemn things as the quote-unquote politics of respectability, I think we sometimes make a category mistake or a category inflation and don't attend to the careful arguments that he made about things like anger or trying to resist consumer culture. We call them the respectability politics, but I think they're... 
they have much deeper roots in theology and ethics and things that, although we might not agree with him in the last instance, they require much more sophisticated arguments to criticize and disregard. Jason? One of the stories that I trace in the book is the battles over Martin Luther King holidays, both at the federal level and at the state level. You know, this wasn't only a contentious issue in Washington. It was in, in each of the 50 states. The states also enacted King holidays. And, th- and this was actually a pretty bruising process because King was so radical. Mm-hmm. For instance, in order for President Ronald Reagan to sign Martin Luther King holiday legislation in 1983, King's allies tried to project an image of King, and they highlighted things like the line in the I Have a Dream speech. You know, they highlighted King as the hero of colorblindness and the interracial dreamer. And that did help to indeed get him a federal holiday and get him holidays in all 50 states. The byproduct of that, though, is that people from all across the political spectrum were then able to scrub King's legacy and to basically cut off those parts of of the King legacy that they were uncomfortable with and then to highlight the ones that they wanted to highlight. So, for instance, the Reagan administration started to roll back affirmative action policies. And in so doing, they claimed that King would have supported um, their rollback of affirmative action. When, of course, if, if Brandon's read all of his books, I'm sure he knows the lines and why we can't wait and where do we go from here, where King basically calls for affirmative action for black people. Right. So, you know, that's one way that, that his legacy in the 50 years uh, since his death has sort of been turned and twisted and scrubbed. The other thing that I think it's important to talk about, because at the end, nobody was liking him. I mean, on the big stage, he was struggling. He was not the hero. He was not. He was drawing crowds, certainly. But it was, he was a lonely guy out there in many ways because he had said, I'm going to speak up about this war. I'm going to talk about other issues. I'm going to talk about economic inequality. And people said, that's not your business. I want to just play an excerpt from Martin Luther King's first anti-war speech called Beyond Vietnam. And it was delivered on April 4th, 1967 at New York's Riverside Church. It's pretty powerful. And he's talking here about what a true revolution really is. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just this business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. That was pretty powerful. Now, I I remind folks that he was in Riverside Church, which is pretty open to having, in New York City, having this kind of speech. He couldn't have gone many other places to deliver that in the way that he did. I mean, that's the king that people really don't talk about. That's why I find the work that you both have done to document exactly where he was very, very powerful indeed. And I wonder how you think that king now informs today Um, Now, we've talked about reversing the sort of amber image of him, but 
when people understand that's the king at the end of his life, and that's the king really through all of his life, he just articulated in a different way toward the end. How does that speak to now? People hear those words, Jason. What, what do you want them to take away, or what, what should well, people be taking away from that? Well, that Riverside Church speech, King was really focused on two things, economic justice and his opposition to the Vietnam War. And he saw the two things as linked. The more money that LBJ spent on bombs in Vietnam, the less money he spent on resources for struggling Americans. And King thought because of the nation's misplaced priorities, it was approaching, quote-unquote, spiritual death. He also said that our loyalties have to become ecumenical rather than sectional. Hmm. So we're at a time where, where we're talking about you know, mass deportation and and immigration and borders and walls. In King's vision, at its truest, you would lift up those borders. You would see only humans. You would see only people. And and, and I think that's you know that that's at the heart of his vision. His vision was internationalist. It was it was globalist, and he wanted to embrace people you know, all over, whether they're in Vietnam or U.S. or Mexico. So I think if people want to celebrate him on the Martin Luther King Day, they should understand that that's the person they're celebrating and that that's what he truly believed. Brandon? One of the great tragedies of the last few years is that the prosecution of permanent war by the United States government has unfolded with a bust of Martin Luther King right in the Oval Office, Mm. right? Assassination orders straight from the president's desk, without any review by judges or anybody outside of the security bureaucracy, the massive expansion of the surveillance state. These are things that would have horrified King. And of all of his dimensions, I think this is the part that unfortunately is the weakest in our civic culture. We have not met the challenge that permanent war, the entrenched power of the security state that threatens democracy, we haven't met that challenge popularly. For a long time, people thought that African-Americans were a kind of natural constituency for anti-imperialist politics. Under the Obama administration, that ceased to be the case. And when we return to King, we've got to, you know, one of the things he does in the Riverside speech is he asks people to think from the perspective of the anti-imperialist struggle in Vietnam. What must it feel like to try to throw off the yoke of colonialism only to meet the force of American empire trying to restage it, Right. We're not doing a great job of thinking about how our actions are received and interpreted across the globe. He also asked us to think about the boomerang effects of perpetual war, right? When he talks about bringing people home with mental illness, physical disability, drug addiction, that's what we're reaping right now, right? It's no coincidence that our longest standing war is coinciding with a massive opiate epidemic, right? That... The number of men who've dropped, able-bodied, working-age men who've dropped out of the workforce to be on permanent disability coincides with the longest war in American history. These aren't accidents. These are the boomerang effects of trying to engage in perpetual violence. And so, again, it's important to take his critiques not just as moralist ones, but as really practical, pragmatic judgments about the ethics of war and the practicality of war in our contemporary empire. Well, thank you both for joining me and helping to kick off our discussion about who Reverend Martin Luther King really is and his true legacy 50 years after his death. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. 
Brandon Terry is an assistant professor of African and African American Studies and Social Studies at Harvard University. He is the co-editor with Tommy Shelby of To Shape a New World, Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King, Jr. And Jason Sokol is an associate professor of history at the University of New Hampshire. He is the author of The Heavens Might Crack, The Death and Legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr. Coming up, a hymn that captured the heart of Dr. King. Two local scholars give us insight into the song that moved crowds at King's rallies and brought the Reverend peace in times of struggle. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. to a recording of legendary gospel singer Mahalia Jackson performing Take My Hand, Precious Lord. It was Dr. Martin Luther King's favorite song, and he often requested it at rallies and marches to inspire his followers. And in 1968, Jackson performed it at Dr. King's funeral. But the song has a long history prior to its association with Dr. King. Here to discuss Take My Hand, Precious Lord, Ingrid Monson, the Quincy Jones Professor of African American Music and Professor of African and African American Studies and Music at Harvard University. Welcome, Ingrid. Thank you very much. Also with me, Dennis Montgomery III, Professor of Berkeley College of Music and Director of Berkeley's Reverence Gospel Choir. He is also the Minister of Music at Pleasant Hill Baptist Church and Holistic Life Baptist Church Ministries. Hello, Dennis. Hello. I'm so glad to have both of you here to have this discussion because I don't think a lot of people know, in fact, I know that a lot of people don't know, that the very last words that Dr. King uttered before he was shot on that balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis was requesting the song, Precious Lord, to be played and sung that night at the rally that he had hoped to attend and lead. So that makes it pretty powerful in his life overall. So I want to start out with both of you explaining to me what its history was to him, and then we'll go back and talk about the history of the song itself. Ingrid, I'll start with you. Well, I think the song was so associated with Mahalia Jackson, it became her signature song in the 40s, and I'm sure that he must have heard that song as he was growing up and becoming a minister. And then once the Civil Rights Movement began, Mahalia Jackson was very close to Martin Luther King and sang at rallies beginning with the Montgomery boycott in 1956. There was a prayer pilgrimage in Washington in 1957 to honor the uh, third year anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. Mahalia Jackson was there singing this song. Martin Luther King, when he had events in Chicago, would stay with Mahalia Jackson. 
So this whole world of the gospel community that was musical and with the preachers, they were all interconnected. And this song seemed to summarize the kind of struggle of the civil rights movement. It's a song you, you sing, I'm tired, I'm weary, I can barely go on. Take my hand, precious Lord, and give me some hope, give me some optimism, give me a way to carry on. So, Dennis, now that we know the close relationship with Mahalia Jackson and um, Reverend King, what was it about this song that was so connected to Mahalia herself? I mean, why she sang many gospel songs. Why yes. this one? This one was one of her special ones. Um, she always had a special way of delivering this particular song due to her struggles herself. You know, she had some of the challenges with race as well as with, you know, husbands, you know, who wanted her to sing R&B, but she chose um, the religious route. I just am so interested about how many people have, have sung this song. Dennis, Clara Ward is your favorite singer um, yeah, who sings this song. Them, yes. so, so let's listen to Clara Ward sing Take My Hand, Precious Lord. Precious Lord, take my Lead me on, let me stand, I'm so tired, I'm weak, I'm warm. Beautiful rendition of the song. Um, and as both of you have pointed out, it has uh, the words themselves really speak to pain and overcoming pain. So let, we should talk about the history of the song. Um, the composer was Thomas Dorsey, yes. and he had a particularly interesting history because oh, yeah. he was accused by some, I'm using that word deliberately, of bringing R&B into the church, oh, Dennis. Exactly. So that was his history. Talk a little bit about Thomas Dorsey before we connect him to this song specifically. Thomas Dorsey wrote this song as um, he was on a gig, and at the gig he got word that his wife was in labor. And on his way back, he also got word that his wife had passed away with child. So that's more than a shocking experience for anybody to go through. So he immediately started to write the words, Precious Lord, take my hand. And of course, with the chords and the, the musicality behind it, Unfortunately, was not accepted, <laughs> even in, in the black churches. They know? thought it was a little too it bluesy. It was a little too bluesy, mm. but too many blues or diminished chords. He was just really echoing his musical influence that he had previously as a blues piano player. We have a clip from this fabulous documentary in 1982 called Say Amen, Somebody. So we get a chance to hear Thomas Dorsey himself explain the origins of his song, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. This is Thomas Dorsey. He says, I don't know what to do and I don't know how to do. And uh, I just tried to make my little talk to the Lord, but it was wasted, I think. And uh, I called the Lord some one thing, and uh, one of the other says, no, that's not his name, said Precious Lord. I said, that just sound good. And it's got several amens on Precious Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, believe it or not, I started singing right then and there, Precious Lord, take my hand. Ingrid. 
listening to Thomas Dorsey talk about the painful origins of the song, it's interesting to me because Dennis has spoken about the blues influence, and you've pointed out that it's really a very simple song. It's just mm-hmm. three chords. Mm-hmm. Does that add to the power of it? And what is the meaning of just the simplicity of the song and the lyrics? Well, the simplicity of the song is that you don't sing it straight. It has to be embellished and improvised on. It becomes a platform for the singer to bear witness to the song. And the way they choose to phrase it, a way to embellish the melody and the feeling that's there. I always like to think of how Bernice Regan talks about this. Mm. She says that you don't just sing a song, you raise a song. It's a very open song, so it's deceptively simple. It really tests the powers of the singer to sing it in a moving and impressive kind of way when you have people like Mahalia Jackson who've sung it, Aretha Franklin, Clara Ward. And we should note that Bernice Johnson Reagan, for people who may have heard that Mm -hmm. name, at one, founder of Sweet Honey and the Rock. So that's why most people would know her. But also of the freedom singers during the civil rights movement and a scholar of music long associated with the Smithsonian. So that's the shorthand of Bernice Johnson Reagan. And that brings me to this point, Ingrid Monson of Harvard University and Dennis Montgomery. Many of the songs that were sung during the civil rights movement were adapted from hymns. This one was not. This one stayed in its hymn form and was sung at the rallies alongside some of the the adapted other hymns. Dennis, why do you think this one was not never changed? Well, when you have words as powerful as precious Lord, take my hand, that's no more than saying, Jesus, God, take the will. Because if I were to deal with the situations, you know, we as human beings would definitely go crazy. It is important for us to know the meaning of the song as in uh, Jesus, take the will, because I can't do this by myself. That's why you have to lead me on. Please, Ling, I need you near me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't go away. Take the will. You know, that's why I feel that this song has stayed in the minds of, in this case, millions of people, because this is an international song Mm -hmm. now. It was started as a close-knit American type of song. Now it's pretty much international and is known in several languages. You know, I've been around the world thanks to Berkeley. (laughs) And, you know, even when I teach abroad, you know, people will mention this particular song or even sing it. That's my guest, Dennis Montgomery of Berkeley College of Music. Uh, And uh, he and I and Ingrid Monson of Harvard University are discussing the significance of the gospel hymn, Take My Hand, Precious Lord, and its impact on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and now, as Dennis has explained, around the world. Yes. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley if you have just tuned in. Ingrid, why do you think it was never adapted? Well, for similar reasons. It was the words were so profound and they so much spoke to what was going on in the civil rights movement. I mean, we have to remember how scary it was for people to go out and march in the street and risk everything. And that part of the preparation for that was mass meetings Mm -hmm. in the church the night before where you sang songs to give you the courage to go out and face being arrested, being beaten by police the next day, or for many people losing their livelihoods by Mm -hmm. being seen out at the demonstration. So I interviewed a number of people a while back who talked about music as a way of managing fear during the civil rights movement. And the lyrics to this song really help you manage fear 
when I'm tired, when I'm weary, mm. when I'm scared, mm. take my hand, give me that strength to go the extra mile. And I, I think that sums up the civil rights movement. Now, you've said that one of your favorite renditions of it is the one sung by Lettucey or Ledesi? I never know how to pronounce her I name. Think it's Lettucey. It's Lettucey. Okay, all right, it's Lettucey, who some people may know as an R&B singer, but the reason uh, we're bringing it up is this: she played Mahalia Jackson in the Selma movie that you all may remember mm-hmm. was directed by Ava DuVernay and was a quite big sensation. So this is from the soundtrack to the 2014 movie Selma in which Lettucey played Mahalia Jackson. <laughs> I am tired. I am weak. I am Where I come from, if you can sing a cappella, you can really sing. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Oh my goodness, that's beautiful. (laughs) Picking up on what you both have said earlier about the universality of the song in terms of its being picked up now and appreciated around the world, we found a version of Elvis Presley singing this song. So, Ingrid, before you comment on it, I want us to hear a little bit of Elvis Presley. Yes, Mr. Uh, Blue Suede Shoes himself (laughs) singing, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am Ingrid, what would possess Elvis Presley to record this? Well, you know, it's interesting because it's not the only Thomas Dorsey song he recorded. He also recorded Mm. Peace in the The Valley. Valley. Really? So what that kind of says to me is Elvis listened to gospel music. (laughs) And, you know, he was from Memphis and and in the neighborhood or, you know, (laughs) in the street just across from the neighborhood. And so he must have heard these songs. Oh, yes. And there's been a long tradition of white Americans hearing things they liked and doing versions of them themselves. I'm now with these. I don't think these were money makers for him. No. This was, I think, that's I was, what makes it so odd. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, that there was a sincere feeling for liking the song. It's kind of the country version mm. of Precious Absolutely. Lord, yes. and I think Peace in the Valley is too. But he wanted mm-hmm. to make his own versions. The pieces moved him. What do you think stands out for people who hear it today? I'm not talking about people who go to church all the time and may hear it as a part of oh, one of the hymns mm-hmm. that comes up. But most people are not going to the rallies that King was going to. What resonates, do you think? I would say the same message as it being profound lyrics, as well as making it your own personal testimony, is, is the way that you embellish it. You know, it doesn't really have to be with an actual beat, such as in the version of Elvis Presley. Mm. It can be in rubato, and Mm. that means just however you feel it. Mm. Just like Mahalia Jackson saying it, 
even Clara Ward, even um, Aretha Franklin. Well, let's pause and hear Aretha yeah. Franklin. So then you can talk to me about how Aretha Franklin sings it. Here's Aretha Franklin singing, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. This is the Queen of Soul. Oh, yes. Leave me Well, we're all nodding here in the studio because Aretha is Aretha. Aretha is Aretha. She stands alone. (laughs) My goodness, that's really quite the version of it. Interesting that a song as old as it is and with the kind of very much rooted in religious terms and really a hard personal story has remained so significant. I think, though, that because we know that it's Dr. King's favorite song, and now a lot of people know that it was the last thing that he asked for. Mm. To me, it just has a different kind of reverence. Yes. Um, people may remember that the night before in Memphis, he preached his sermon saying, if I don't get there with you. Mm. And we've looked back and thought he was prescient and thinking, I know I'm going to be killed. Certainly he didn't know it would be the next night. But to have preached that sermon the night before, he walks out on the balcony and literally looks down on the gentleman who was going to arrange the music that night, Ben Branch, and says, tonight, please, would you sing, Precious Lord, Take My Hand? That's something, Ingrid. It's deep. People would say there's a spiritual connection there. And it was a very powerful song for him. I think we should remember also that it was... Mahalia's signature song, and she toured with Dorsey in the 30s and 40s and made that song associated with her. So Mahalia deeply connected to Dorsey, Mahalia deeply connected to Martin Luther King, and it kind of summing up the great courage, spiritual, ethical, moral of Martin Luther King that's never been surpassed. Hmm. You agree, Dennis? Oh, yeah. What makes it stands out to me is like the time frame in which you mentioned, you know, Ingrid, mm-hmm. when she was touring with Dorsey. Yeah. And we all know that was a time frame when America was excruciatingly Segregated. divided. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There were no civil rights laws, <laughs> to know? be clear. Yes. 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 That's right. Yeah. And, you know, and for it to have its consistency mm-hmm. in the midst of that actual struggle of being so divided and segregated. Mm-hmm. And I'm quite sure back then when Mahalia and Thomas Dorsey was touring together, yeah, they probably thought it was like a meaningless cause, but they kept their consistent faith in believing, mm-hmm. you know, um, which constitutes, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, consistency in preaching nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Ingrid, you want to add? I just think that the whole moral message of what Dr. King stood for in nonviolence against the worst possible treatment you could have, it just it modeled a better morality, a better mm-hmm. ethics, something that was not only about lifting African Americans up, but lifting white people up to begin to open their eyes to yeah. the effect of racism on everybody. And I think it's important to remember that this whole gospel world that Dorsey, Mahalia Jackson, and Dr. King come out of was like the organizational backbone of the civil rights movement. Mm. It was a world that the white world didn't really know about. But preachers circulated for revivals, singers, musicians. There was a whole network established in which this music and its message and the striving for civil rights quietly circulated and then becomes known nationally, beginning with the Montgomery bus boycott. 
picking up about how it has been consistently sung now around the world, embraced by a new set of generations. I want us to listen to Beyonce singing this at the Grammys. This is the 2015 Grammys. She (laughs) sings it with a choir. All right, this is Beyonce. Grammys, Ingrid. How? how well, that well, seems I think so great. I do too, but it's just I, interesting. I think it's yeah. fantastic, and and you know, and why I like Lettucey's version or Beyonce singing this is that I think the younger generation of R and B artists understands the significance of songs like these, mm-hmm. and and singing them, I think. It's really nice to hear, and uh, there are many wonderful versions. And I think we're, you know, the, the song's going to continue mm, mm. for Dennis. decades and decades, and if not centuries. <laughs> yes. One thing I noticed, especially Beyonce's version, as well as Lettucey, you can tell the Mahalia Jackson influence. Mm, you can't mm. even deny it. You know, I'm kind of wishing I had Mahalia Jackson as a vocal teacher myself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> even though she had no form of vocal training, it was yeah. one of those natural gifts, you know, from God, like Martin Luther King said, you know, you only get a voice like that once in a millennium, and that's true, once. (laughs) So they're doing respect to the legacy of both Mahalia Jackson and Martin Luther King Jr., Mm -hmm. who would have been um, this year 89 years old. Mm. Thank you both for talking to me about Dr. King's favorite song and what it meant. (laughs) My pleasure. Ingrid Monson is the Quincy Jones Professor of African American Music and Professor of African and African American Studies and Music at Harvard University. And Dennis Montgomery III is Professor at Berklee College of Music and Director of Berklee's Reverence Gospel Choir. He is also the Minister of Music at Pleasant Hill Baptist Church and Holistic Life Baptist Church Ministries. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me at on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Home.